You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Casey Dupart, a highly accomplished K-12 administrator, school psychologist, certified clinical trauma professional, and board-certified behavior analyst. With a diverse career spanning various educational settings across the globe, from Italy to Hawaii, Dr. Dupart brings a wealth of experience and expertise to our discussion. Join us as we explore the vital role of systems-level approaches in enhancing both education and mental health outcomes for students everywhere. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Casey Dupart. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, I'm excited. I love to talk about the policy piece. I love to be able to talk about how we can look at changing systems over time to be able to make things more equitable and, and, and increase access to some of the wonderful services that maybe do exist we just don't know about. But before we go there, every one of the guests have had something wonderful to share about what sparked their journey within the field of disabilities or within the field of caring for the autistic population is what is it that that kind of drove you and drove your passion to work in within the schools within psychology and and within those who maybe benefit from from having more of a, a public advocacy I think I got it just by uh, osmosis. Now that I think about it with my mother and the work she did working with individuals with disabilities and from Austin, Texas. So I was getting my graduate degree in school psychology at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And I was just fortunate enough to be in a program that allowed you to add courses to do it alongside with your school psychology masters. So I was able to add the BCBA. It, I would not recommend it. <laughs> I was very busy, but I was able to be exposed to working with children with significant behavioral concerns and challenges, and I was exposed to that there. So I was very fortunate to be able to do both my internships together to get those BCBA hours together working in the clinic setting as well as the school setting. That's kind of how I started way back in Texas all those years ago. Well, I mean, you started, like you said, way back in Texas all those years ago, but you've had a chance to be a part of experience and hopefully, I mean, guide a lot of what has occurred in some of the places where you've been a practitioner, where you've been an advocate. Can you give us just a little bit of an understanding just from place to place, what you've seen as far as that you know, the diverse educational settings is like, what are what are we seeing that's so different from Texas that we might be seeing differently in Hawaii that you're about to go to Colorado? I mean, <laughs> what are you expecting there? Like, not all these systems are set up in the same format. What What is no. it that you're seeing that creates some differences? A lot of it is making sure that a lot of the law and policy meet up with the needs of the population. That's what I see some of the biggest challenges is that you'll get lawmakers who usually are trying to put the, some type of legislation in place to get access, usually for our community, like how do we get that insurance in a way that it's accessible, that supports the need of our population, and then two, learning how do we support this within the schools? So how do we um, train up BCBAs and RBTs and make it comparable, get the information out to families so they understand how do we support you in a clinic setting, 
the home setting, the school setting, um, the community setting, that collaboration is always crucial. And I see some places are better equipped at that and they have a coalition working together. And then some places can be very fragmented. So that's where I see a lot of the rub is if you have a lot of coalition building and you have a, a stronger community that's collaborative, better supports more fragmentation, then you'll see a lot more tension and confusion. That's just been my experience across the moves. Yeah. Do you feel like that a lot of times the individuals involved see the benefit that they just can't quite figure out how to make everything work? Or do you feel like there's sometimes even pushback in seeing, you know, there's real inherent benefit of being able to look at a collaborative approach or coordinated approach to care so that, you know, the, the treatment follows the client? Right. And I think if you can get people together to see that hey, we're on the same page and wanting to get services, for example, like parents wanting to get services for their their kiddos and then community members wanting to be able to support, usually we step in like we're community supporting uh, going into the schools. You usually I see a lot of rub in interpretation of the laws and the policies, too. So I'll have to explain to staff like, hey, they're this is the same thing. They're just coming at it from a different perspective. So this is where we can support each other. So I think sometimes it's just getting that communication together and that collaboration and seeing that we usually want the same thing where we all have different roles. So there's there's room for all of us. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I've seen as well, is that oftentimes that we all have the same end goal. Yes. Sometimes it's it's hard to see the journey that somebody else is on because we're we're stuck on our own road. And yes. This is, this is where I think, I mean, you started talking a little bit about, you know, almost giving us a brief little definition of a systems-based approach, but maybe because we have a lot of listeners who are trying to really understand, you know, what we use terms, we use mm -hmm. this terminology and sometimes it goes over our heads is what is, you know, that systems level approach to education and mental health? What is, how do you even define that? How do you set that as like the, the parameter when you're having these discussions? It can be challenging. What I've seen, what I always refer back to is the multi-tiered system of support. Usually in schools, you're here referred to as MTSS or response to intervention, RTI. That's usually an evidence-based framework of supporting students throughout levels of need. Usually there's three tiers of intervention, tiers of instruction, and usually at the base level, that's more universal. That's why you're supporting all students, about 80% of the population. And then at tier two, that's about 15%. And usually those are your students that need additional support. They're receiving that universal support, but they usually need a little bit of more support or instructions. If we're talking about behavior that can look anything like working with a specific group of students with a school counselor or school social worker, whatever works for your community, but usually giving them like an added level of support on what's target this area. So I've had kids that just needed to work on their filter in school. <laughs> so we would put them in tier two instruction, working with like the school social worker twice a week. And that was their tier two. And then uh, tier three, usually those are, that's 5% of your population. Those are your kids that usually need to talk to Dr. Dufar. <laughs> so usually after going through tier one, tier two, they're usually at tier three. Um, and usually that's your most intensive. Those kids usually have a functional behavior assessment. You're usually meeting about every four to six weeks for those kiddos as a team. So your administrator will probably be there, your school psychologist, um, and any other of your supports. So if you have aides, it just depends on you, but you do want a team member approach where everyone's come together and you're looking at data to 
see how that student's progressing in that intervention. So usually schools, they usually have a multi-tier system of support or response to intervention model that they're following. And that's their framework for reviewing students academically, behaviorally, social and emotional learning as well. Well, I think one thing that might be a pretty cool kind of process for us to walk through together is um, maybe looking at some of these tiers. And talking about, you know, how does it, the community, how does the mental health system and how does the educational system actually work together to support maybe a fictitious student <laughs> in oh, the process it. of this? And I mean, when we're talking about that that level, that level three, that that third tier child that mm-hmm. typically requires the most intensive support, I would imagine most schools, even if they have all of the the hope and drive and and want is that there's no possible way that any one of us has all of these skill sets to be able to support an individual by ourselves. It requires an entire team to be able to do that. So how does that process work? How do you make sure that that's coordinated and that it's not siloed and that some of that carries over from home to community to school settings? Right. I, I usually help schools with setting this up a lot because I've done it across a lot of different places now. You want to start this at the in the summertime thinking about how do I look at students and how do I look at their data? How am I problem solving? What I'm finding with a lot of schools, they collect so much data, but the interpretation piece, usually the problem solving as well, not as solid. So I'm always telling my staff like, hey, you collect a lot of data. Let's start using that in a way that's more effective and efficient for you and makes sense to parents. So you want to be able to communicate that to parents so they know like, why are you collecting this data? Why is this important? Why are we using it to talk about? And then two, making sure as you're thinking about those tiers, staff knows. So your educators, your speech language pathologists, your occupational therapists, any, anybody knows I can stop someone on your campus and say, hey, how do you support and which levels do you feel comfortable supporting? And when are you usually called? Usually when I'm talking to staff um, and we see each other at meetings, they're like, Dr. Dufour, I don't know why I'm at this meeting. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so we really wanna make sure that you understand, all your staff understand where they support, how the data is being utilized, when are they meeting, and then what's their role. I think that's, that's something that I've had to really help schools with is be very clear on your roles and expectations. So when you are problem solving, people know when to show up and how to show up. So I feel like we all want to help our students, but I think sometimes it's not clear on what's my role, what's the expectation, what are my responsibilities? So I think there's a lot of things that need to be put in place around making these systems more effective. I do think that schools have a lot of these frameworks, but they're not always used efficiently or effectively. And it needs to be done continuously. So it's not just, let's have this conversation. This usually happens if you work in schools. The first week, two weeks of schools, you all sit down. We have MTSS, right? We have a multi-tier. We all nod and agree. (laughs) And then we don't talk about it again. And so we have these kind of random meetings. And I always tell my school leaders, and I I am one of them as well, like, you need to be clear on when these meetings are. And when are we going to come together to review this data? And what's the data? that we're bringing to talk about because a lot of staff get roped in the meetings. They don't know why they're there. And then they feel ill-equipped to even talk about the student or the intervention. No, and what you're talking about as far as that lack of 
actionable data at time. I, d- I don't know that that's just a school issue. I think that's oftentimes, you know, that, <laughs> that could be in the business world, to be honest, is that oftentimes sure. we're collecting data and it's like, how do you make this actionable? Like, what's the value of what you're actually doing? But mm-hmm. you see that, I mean, especially with some of the children is that everything's tied to the IEP and and that's tied to the funding and that's tied to the resources. And oftentimes you get so stuck into collecting data to support a document in lieu of finding the appropriate data to be able to help support the behavior, the skill that you're actually trying to build and making that actionable. How often do you feel like you're trying to navigate the team together to be able to help them realize that, you know, we're all a part of this. Let's find those those key indicators. Let's find that right data to be able to collect and let's all work on this collaboratively to be able to move the child along instead of waiting until the last minute trying to collect a massive amount of data and filling it into the IEP process is that seeing the value of what they're actually collecting so that it makes change to a program. Absolutely. That's a big piece of it. I remember being a new school psychologist and collecting the data and not always quite understanding, like, what am I doing this for? So now I definitely make sure when I'm meeting with teams, I'm asking because schools often collect so much data. I'm like, why are you why are you collecting this data? What purpose does it serve? And also to getting them to think about, especially every year or even like at that winter break, you collect a lot and you're worried about things like retention and your climate and turnover. Let's make sure we don't have redundancies. Because a good climate assessment will let you know really fast what's mm-hmm. going on. And I always tease my staff about this. I'm like, if you wake up and you don't want to go, then your students probably don't want to go and neither do your parents. So be thinking about how those expectations do impact us, they really do. So if you have a lot of redundant data that's being collected and you just have people kind of, if you feel like you're just showing up to a meeting and you're just kind of parroting data and it's not really informing your process, then what's the point? Yeah, no, and that makes that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, for those level three kids, oftentimes it's a visible sort of thing that you're seeing, like the, mm-hmm. the behaviors, the internal processes is that there, you can see the output of what's happening. Like this is mm-hmm. something that it's, it's not something where it's hard for the team to realize we need to act on specific behaviors. As you go through those tiers and hit the tier two, tier one child, is that now you're talking about oftentimes the child that we kind of forget about in the school Mm -hmm. system a little bit more because they're not as disruptive. They're not causing as much of an impact to the community at large when they're having their own challenges with academics or social. How do we make sure that the team provides the same level of impact, whether that is social skills training, mental health, Mm -hmm. or I mean, whatever it may be for that child, how do we make sure that we're not forgetting about them so that they can have a successful transition into adulthood after schooling? Right. That I think leadership really has to help set the tone of we're not checking the box. And that's something that I think about as a school leader is that I'm setting that tone and I'm influencing a lot of my staff with that. So I see at tier one and tier two, usually I have to help staff with, we're still looking at their data. We're still reviewing these these kiddos, particularly at tier two and tier three, because back to my earlier point of if you're collecting all this data and you're doing this intervention and you're meeting, you're doing all this work, you should be reviewing 
the progress of that intervention. And we tend to do that with our high flyers because we're very concerned about those kids because again, those behaviors, like you mentioned, incredibly disruptive, but same thing with our tier one, tier two students, you wanna make sure you're you're keeping a good eye on them. And usually that staff that is supporting there, I wanna make sure we're reviewing those students, at least, you know, best practice every four or six, eight weeks to see how they're progressing and if they still need. I think a lot of schools kind of forget as they're going through that process, tiers one, two, three, um, if it's working, then let's scale back that support because they don't need that because you probably are going to have other students that do. So don't forget about those students. Keep reviewing, still provide support leaders as well. Like if they still, if you have staff that needs professional development, if they need more resources, let's think about our funding. Like how do we support so they feel equipped to support these students and implement a lot of these interventions that we're requesting them to do? In, when you were discussing that review component to this, one of the things that immediately pops to my mind is the fact that oftentimes we talk about the IEP as being an annual IEP. Okay, well, we have to have a very annual IEP. But a lot of child development, a lot of educational success, a lot of social emotional well-being is a fluid process. Mm-hmm. So how much does it take to get administration on board to realize that these need to be regular meetings because you might be modifying a plan. You might be having to adjust goals on a regular basis because having a a clear line of care is almost impossible for any child. Like it's going to be ups and downs. You're going to see dips and you're going to see spikes and what's happening and you need to be able to adjust on a regular basis. Do they do administrators who succeed, do they see this as a fluid document where there is constant checks and balances? I think so. And I think you get more buy-in. I know I would as well. If it's not something that solely rests on the admin shoulders, yes, you kind of set the tone and you, your buy-in is, is pivotal. As a lot of us know with implementation, you need that leader. But if you have a set aside like multi-tier system of support like leadership team or positive behavior interventions and support team as well, because then if you have a team that's overseeing and then the admin knows like I have my best on this and they're gonna make sure that we're having those consistent team meetings. They're gonna brief me about, hey, we need PD in this area. They're really struggling. How do we get funding for that? Can we get staffing? Can we get district support? Can we get state department of education support? Whatever that looks like. Um, but you definitely wanna have, the, have a structure in place, I think, leaders tend to understand like, oh, if I have that, then I'm more likely to have better, more successful interventions. You'll keep staff too, because I found if staff know that you're supporting that and you're going to train them and you're going to make sure they have the funding and the staffing that need they need, then you'll have more buy-in for implementation. I don't, I, I see the pushback with multi-tier system of support usually when staff feel like, what else is new? This is a new Thing that you're adding all these acronyms every year we have something new but if you're saying hey i'm going to have um support for you get feedback for you it's not just something i'm going to tell you to do and walk away usually you'll see way more buy-in with that model it really does feel like every person involved in that care plan has to be fully committed for it yeah. to be a success and that the administrators like you said they're setting a tone but it can't be on their shoulders. So what is the parent role in this? Because parents across every stage of their child's success, empowerment, development, they are a critical piece. So how do they fit in with this multi-tiered level service of, of treatment? 
They should be a part of, I think parents should know as soon as they come into school, into that campus, what's going on. You know, I don't, I, those are the meetings I've always, I still remember when you go to a tier three meeting and parents are not aware that you're the psychologist at a tier three meeting, <laughs> they're usually not happy to see me. So you want to make sure parents are a part of your village and you're communicating, hey, this is how we support students. And whether that's a newsletter or back to school night, um, I've seen town halls, I've seen leaders get real and campuses get real creative on how do we bring the village in so they know how we support, making sure they're there for their tier, those tier one, tier two meetings, however you set that up, just make sure parents are aware of what that support looks like. You don't want to blindside them at a tier three meeting or a special education initial uh, <laughs> evaluation. And they're like, wait a minute, what's going on? You've been collecting data. I, so you want to make sure parents know what's going on and get that feedback, make it collaborative. My interventions are always much more solid when I know what's going on at home. And I usually, I want, if I'm elevating a student at tier two to tier three, I want to make sure parents are aware of that process, what our intervention is, get their feedback, what they're doing at home, start thinking about some of that social developmental history. So then, that helps to inform our intervention as well academically or behaviorally but you want to make sure that you're bringing them in i always think about my parents as being a part of the process i'm doing this with you rather than to you mm -hmm. your approach I, I i think that it's probably appreciated from both the school administrator side and the parental side because oftentimes one of the biggest barriers that i've seen and this is from when I was working with parent support groups all the way through the clinical work is people put up a wall. They, they almost feel like it's, it's a me versus you sort of mentality and I need to fight you to get what I want instead of collaborate with you. And I think that part of what you were describing there and helping everybody to realize that the voice of the parent, the voice of the educator, the voice of the clinician, all of them need to be heard in order to really support the child. I think that's a, a very important piece for us all to kind of lean on a little bit. So how do you, because you've been doing this consultation, you've been helping for this in, integration of the models of care to really work well. So how, how are you using some of the principles? Because your background was in ed, you've had ed psych, you've had behavior analytic work. I mean, you've, you've been able to get versed on a variety of different disciplines. How's that helped you to be able to navigate some of these conversations and some of the intricacies that exist when you're creating treatment plans. Gosh, listening to you, I really, I think the thing that grounds me now more than ever is that, Casey, in this very challenging, uncertain time is you need your village, you need your community. I have to always ground myself in the needs. Anytime people ask me, like, well, how do you want to move forward on this? I'm always censoring the needs of the population and the stakeholders in, in the room. So I am always thoughtful of any recommendations that I make, making sure I center that. And I pull from all the different experiences that I've had across schools, clinics, homes, state boards of education, advocacy work. I feel like every move, uh, the previous move prepared me for that move. <laughs> so I really feel that anything that I do, it has to be centered in my stakeholders and really being collaborative, being thoughtful, being intentional. I think with moving forward for us, just globally, nationally, we need to do this collectively. It's, it, 
centering one person or one group is not the way to do it. That just has been my experience. You have to move as a village. So and on that's on the implementation side. You've done a lot of policy work and policy requires oftentimes to be able to see the successful implementation for people to actually buy into the process so that we can see, you know, what what is the benefit? How have we learned? What is what is working well? <clears throat> One of the things within the multi-tiered system that we had a previous guest speak about was that we've we've kind of moved a little bit away from creating inclusive environments for some of the tiers is that we haven't really worked as well in all states and every every state feels like it's at a different place and even districts are a different place to but we've moved away from focusing on creating an environment of of inclusion and acceptance with treatment embedded um how do you how do you suggest that we work with that concept and i mean advocate for that to be a part of that tier system or do you see it as not beneficial for all children within those tiers to have some level of inclusion when when appropriate i think it's important i always think about with special ed we think of creating instruction especially design and I think about that for all of my tiers. So for me, I've always thought of it from a lens of equity and inclusion. I think implementation is always, if I'm honest, going to be an area where you're constantly progress monitoring to make it better. I think with doing any intervention, you need to be thinking about the specific needs of your population. So for me, I wouldn't design a multi-tier system of support that looked just like the one from Texas and implemented in North Carolina or from Utah and transition that over and generalize that to Hawaii. So you really want to be thoughtful of your population and their needs specifically. I think, too, you need to be thinking about your educators and their capacity, because when I see inclusion and equity and even trauma-informed practices, I think that inclusive piece isn't always implemented effectively, especially if you don't have staff that understand what they're supposed to be doing and if they're not adequately prepared or trained. Because I think sometimes we'll use the buzzwords and we want to say, and we'll put them on our websites, like, yeah, I have this, but do you really have the literacy to affect this, to implement a lot of these concepts effectively and without harm? No, and I've, I've seen that. I mean, I've seen it firsthand where a child just sits in the back of a classroom with headphones on and that's considered inclusion because you didn't have all the appropriate resources to be able to figure out how to empower that child in that environment to contribute in a meaningful way where they feel like they're a part of that community versus being in a kind of a space in an environment but not really a part of what is actually transpiring um and and this i guess brings up another question that i would have is that we've talked about within the schools having kind of the multi-tiered system where does where does healthcare come into play on some of this? Because in order to provide the appropriate level of care sometimes is that you need resources coming from outside the schools to support within the schools. And and, and that's funded, it's paid for, and, and it's it is part of what we're allocated as parents, as students, is that this is part of the process. So how do how do we make sure that there A is a relationship that exists? where that is a possibility, but B, that we're able to integrate appropriately without stepping on each other's toes and knowing the roles of each individual in those environments. 
I think it's important if you're an outside provider coming into the schools to really understand the school setting prior to. I always, I feel like in every move that becomes like my role. It's like, hey, if you're coming into schools, this is, let's, let's talk about schools one-on-one real quick, real fast. Come side Barbara Casey. Because I see a lot of people go into schools and don't necessarily know how they function. I train a lot of ABA providers on this, on breaking silos, how to effectively become a part of a multidisciplinary team and collaborate and respect everybody that works, like know who works in the schools, understand that they have their own federal laws and state laws and every state functions differently, every district, charter schools are different, private schools, like understand the layout so you can be effective in what you do and you can be useful. And I find educators can be, you'll have much more buy-in if you think about their profession and you come in respectfully and with humility, like in a willingness to learn. I know for me, every time I, I move, I'm humbled all over again <laughs> because every state is different. Mm-hmm. Everywhere I go is different. So just coming in, understanding that, okay, there's a lot I can learn here and here's how I can support. And I think you'll get more buy-in that way. Um, but I, I know some states can be very challenging. I've been in states where the, like, I mean, one right now doesn't have a license for school psychologists, doesn't have one 49 other states do. Hawaii doesn't. Uh, my K-12 administrative license wasn't acknowledged. And I'm like, where's your policy to say that I don't have a license here, but I have one there. So I know that every state has its challenges and wherever you are, you're going to have to navigate that context. But I do know that if you learn about those stakeholders and um, you are respectful, you'll be able to get more buy-in that way. Mm-hmm. So you had chuckled in the beginning about, you know, your your background and how how you kind of overloaded on the education initially. It was like, oh, goodness. But, I mean, you don't walk away from a lot of master's and ABA programs with a full understanding of collaborative care, multidisciplinary efforts, integrative care, because it, it just isn't always the heavy focus of a program where in an ed setting is that maybe that is a large component of how do you integrate all these services together. Um, so what is it that that maybe we should be focusing on when if we're trying to empower behavior analysts in the community to be able to do things right? Is this an education component that maybe we should try and enhance from the master's education level all the way through field uh, field work supervision where, you know, we need to put more emphasis on this? I think so. I And I, I want to be empathetic because I know ABA institutions that I had are like, we're trying. <laughs> so, and I get it because as in my school psychology master's, they try to prepare you to the best of their ability on this is what work might look like for you and how support might look like for you. I think that we should we should create programs that are um, more reflective of what the work looks like, especially for us as behavior analysts going into schools, then our curriculum needs to reflect that. I get a lot of contact via social media or even email about, hey, I don't feel prepared to support in the school setting, and I don't feel like I got a lot of support there, and I don't really, I'm drowning in this new role, and I just don't feel like I was equipped for this. So, and I get that constantly. I know I was able to benefit from being trained as a school psychologist. I don't think I would have done it the other way. I think I'm, I'm very fortunate that I had that knowledge and that insight 
and that experience, I do feel that our our programming needs, you know, a little bit more added to it to reflect the current needs and what our work looks like. Because I know a lot of us are transitioning out of other roles and maybe not working as much in with people with autism or even schools and going into other disciplines. So just being mindful as as that um, changes in where we go and what that work looks like, then maybe considering like, hey, we need to think about our programming a little different too. I think all of those skills that you described make a well-rounded clinician. I think that whether it's those interpersonal skills, the ability to be able to integrate with other professions, um, I think that all of those are are things that we need to continue to develop because we are working with a population that utilizes a lot of resources and their their disciplines that if they are siloed, aren't necessarily going to work well. They need to be integrated. Um, but I guess that that kind of moves us to, I mean, you've done so much of this work. Like you have a really good perspective um, on how to be able to make this work. And you've seen a lot of different environments to be able to kind of learn from, from some of the different cultures, some of the different um, educational perspectives and and some of the mental health perspectives that are out there. But where should we be looking? What's what's the future of systems level approach and how do we advocate for some of the change or start pushing in the direction, maybe for more research, maybe for innovation? What is it that we can start doing? Because we have so much information. We have mm-hmm. had so much practice to be able to research quite a bit of what we've been doing. Where do we go now? I think the future is definitely collaboration. Um, you're, with anything that we do, what I keep finding is we'll want to move forward in a direction and we forgot various stakeholder groups. That's what I keep seeing in, in policy. So then you have to course correct or even start over and you feel like you wasted a lot of time. So I think the future is definitely being much more thoughtful and deliberate and intentional in our collaboration and our coalition building. Um, just because we have such a diverse population nationally. You want to, wherever you are, be thoughtful about how can I advocate and how can I uh, contribute to this conversation in supporting, regardless of your role, just finding how do I do this? I know for me, I've done a lot of advocacy. It's been something that I feel very grounded in and rooted in, especially as I've moved around and saw all the challenges. So I've been a president of a state association for school psychologists. I chair the school collaboration committee for the Utah Association for Behavior Analysis, and I helped to develop their equity committee. Um, I, I advocate a lot now, especially as a military spouse, in making sure that our protections are, are supported for the Military Spouse Licensing Relief Act as we move, because it's very challenging to maintain those licenses across moves. So wherever you are, just be mindful of like, what's my role and how can I? Because I think we all have a voice. We all have something to add in to um, kind of take up space and say, hey, we need to we need to support and advocate for this population. There's a need here. I find for myself, and I get, and I was just telling a colleague about this. I'm like, I feel like everywhere I go, I end up advocating for something. And I usually, I'm like, I'm trying to be quiet. I'm just not trying to say anything. I was, I was going to be quiet this move, and then something happens, <laughs> and I end up having to to write someone and talk to members of Congress and it's always it's always something. So just I think the future is definitely advocacy and coalition building. You definitely want to do this in community and be thoughtful about it. 
And and we appreciate that voice. So so please continue to do that because it, it, minimally what it does is it makes people stop and think. I mean, if we're not reevaluating where we're at on a regular basis, how are we ever going to get better at what we're doing? And status quo is never really where you want to end up. I mean, you always want to be better, like better is better and keep moving that direction. Um, so you just through trying to be able to consult with others, train others, educate, advocate, you've run across a lot of resources and trying to figure that out as a parent and even as a clinician, where to get the right resources or to understand even where to start on understanding some of these, it's hard. It's it's hard to navigate it all. There's too much out there sometimes. Um, where would you suggest parents turn to when they're trying to understand this multi-tiered approach or clinicians on how to be able to understand it so that they can be a part of it going forward? Right. I Wherever you are, you definitely want to tap into your state organizations. So I always think local. Think about your state associations. If you have any advocacy group for parents, uh, behavior analysts, school psychologists, whichever flavor, I think you can usually find good support locally. So I always recommend to parents, reach out to your local people. You can always look at the National Associations for School Psychologists, the National Association for Principals, speech language pathologists, school nurses, social workers. It gives you a good idea of the multidisciplinary approach and then how they're supporting within your community. I think, um, I found a lot when I've really been thoughtful about how do I plug in locally? And you'll see groups, whether it's Facebook or websites, what have you, you definitely want to be thinking about what is impacting me locally and plugging in from there, because then it'll give you an idea of how to best um, feel empowered as a parent, as a caregiver, knowing what's going on. Because I know we have a lot going on and it can be incredibly frustrating and overwhelming, but if you are tapped into your local community, you'll feel like you'll have much more um, um, support, I would say, more support and you feel knowledgeable. I know whenever I've been a part of a big community, I was fortunate to have one in Utah. We had a Utah coalition of school-based specialists. It was school psychologists, school social workers, school nurses. I felt like I could tackle a lot of the uncertainty, especially during COVID, because I had a village. So tap into your village. You'll find a lot of good resources there. No, and, and that's that's a appreciated insight is that oftentimes tapping into that asking all the right questions keeps uh, the maybe a term like multidisciplinary care from becoming a buzzword and instead makes it an actionable word. You can see what you can actually do with it. And I think that's the big point is how do you take something conceptually mm-hmm. and make it a practical concept? And you've done a great job in many different places. I know Colorado is going to be very happy when you get out there, but Um, I think that those are the steps that need to be taken. So, Casey, I appreciate you coming on and being able to talk with us about, you know, the the steps of systems levels approaches and and helping us to really start the process of evaluating how to be a part of this system. So thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. 
ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.